think if we're being honest with ourselves, 2020 was a shock to so many of us, especially in the Western world and in the United States. What I intend to propose to you today is a different way of looking at what happened in 2020. It's the light of tradition that must be cast upon the events of 2020, especially the election or so-called election that we had. What I'd like to do with you on this video is to present to you this article that I found Somebody sent it to me on Twitter, and I actually printed it out and read it. I walked through it with the family. We had a good discussion about it, and I thought it would be good uh, for us to discuss it. But in order to prime our thoughts and our thinking, I've got this thing that's been echoing in my mind, and I can't get it out. And I think you've heard it, too. So um, I made this little montage. Check it out. But if you are feeling up to it, there was something I wanted to talk to you about. Fire away. I was listening to the wireless this morning where they described this fog as an act of God. Now, in your letter that you sent me, you said, loyalty to the ideal you have inherited is your duty above everything else because the calling comes from the highest source, from God himself. Yes. Do you really believe that? Monarchy is God's sacred mission to grace and dignify the earth, to give ordinary people an ideal to strive towards, an example of nobility and duty to raise them in their wretched lives. Monarchy is a calling from God. That is why you're crowned in an abbey, not a government building, why you're anointed, not appointed. It's an archbishop that puts the crown on your head, not a minister or public servant, which means that you're answerable to God in your duty, not the public. On Sunday, it was a great, my great honor to be sworn in as speaker and to preside over a sacred ritual of renewal as we gathered under this dome of this temple of democracy to open the 117th Congress. As we gathered under this dome of this temple of democracy to open the 117th Congress. Temple of democracy, temple of democracy. This temple to democracy was desecrated. Its windows smashed, our offices vandalized. The world saw Americans elected officials hurriedly ushered out because they were in harm's way. This temple to democracy, this temple to democracy, this temple to democracy was desecrated, was desecrated, was desecrated. This is America's day. This is democracy's day, a day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew, and America has risen to the challenge. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people, has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again 
that democracy is precious, democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. <laughs> democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, democracy is precious, democracy is fragile, democracy is fragile. I, I, uh, I find this to be a very emotional time. I've said to the members, we're very passionate to our reaction to this assault on our democracy, on this temple to democracy. I don't think I'm the only person who has noticed that everybody has this penchant for referring to the democratic process in religious terms. And I don't think that that's a coincidence. And I don't think that if you are watching Restoring the Faith on YouTube or wherever else you're consuming this uh, podcast, that you are alone in your suspicion that there is a whole group of people out there that are looking at our democracy, so-called, and rethinking it. Uh, it, it need not be said that there are plenty of reasons for us to be rethinking it post-2020 with the usurper-in-chief in the White House right now who prevailed, perhaps, with the help of a software glitch from a name that I cannot say on YouTube. What I want to do is I want to read you long excerpts from this article that I've show, I'm pulled up on the screen here. It was originally published in the French, but thanks to Google Translate, I'm able to read a lot of it in English. Some of it didn't come through, and that's okay. I have a couple more videos I'm going to cut to while we have this discussion, but what I'd like to propose to you are the nascent thoughts of a man who, have, who has pledged allegiance to the flag of the United States of America many, many times, who has raised his right hand and uh, pledged a solemn oath to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States. Um, this is a thought process that has been coming for a long time. I've been waiting for a while until after the election to propose it to you. I didn't want to propose you these thoughts before the election for the very reason that I didn't want to be blamed for what would happen afterwards. It was bad enough when I told you that I didn't think that Archbishop Vigano was telling the truth about being in hiding. Uh, that was bad enough, and a lot of you have attacked me quite viciously for that. So I didn't want to sit here and tell you not to vote in the U.S. presidential election in 2020 out of principle, out of Catholic principle um, beforehand. But now that we can look back uh, in retrospect, I think we can have this honest discussion. So if you like what you're listening to, please consider subscribing to the channel. Uh, click the like on this uh, video. And by the way, people watch videos when you share them with other people. Um, I watched a video today, actually, because somebody shared it with me, and it's something I never would have found and never would have clicked on. Um, so I'm glad that that happened. Before I get into this, I just want to give a quick thank you to Glory and Shine, who's recently formed a partnership with RTF. And this is the first time in a live stream uh, that I'm actually able to play their 30-second commercial for you. I just uh, used their products today. I use their soap. I use their aftershave. And um, I can tell you that it's really good stuff here.
Okay, guys, you are going to hear from Father Ripperger today. You're also going to hear from Venerable Fulton Sheen during the course of this broadcast. But what you're looking at right now is a headline from the EU. EU in shock as Trump mob storms Temple of Democracy. I saw this meme uh, the other day uh, after, after the events of the Epiphany. Do you remember when this congressman, uh, during the opening prayer of the new Congress on January 4th, 2021, when he prayed to all kinds of different pagan gods and idols, and then he said, Amen, a women. The Amen and a women part uh, sort of uh, made the news. What didn't make the news was that in the pantheon that he was standing in, in this temple of democracy in which he was standing, he prayed to all kinds of different deities who were not the almighty God of the Bible, uh, Holy Trinity, and uh, in fact, he, he I think he prayed to everyone except the Holy Trinity. And there you are a few days later and you have a man wearing horns at the helm. Now, you and I both know that that's a false flag, but that's besides the point. That actually happened. But the person who put this meme together is is realistically, it, there's there's a lot of meaning here. There's some subtext here. The person who put this meme together is essentially saying that Almighty God is striking down the temple of democracy because of the profanation that has happened there. What I propose to you today is that the the profanation that happens there every single time a Congress meets, every single time that a supposedly democratic government is elected, is what we really need to be concerned with. So without further ado, I'm going to start reading you some of these passages from this article. Forgive me if I don't look up at the camera or read your comments for long stretches of time. Uh, I will be punctuated by a couple different videos here that are going to augment what I'm saying. And um, and I think that hopefully we can, in the end, have a very productive and honest conversation together. So again, this is from this article uh, from Vive Le Roy, and uh, it is translated by Google from the French. I'm not going to read you the introduction, but what it talks about is the revolutionary process and the French Revolution in general. French Revolution witnessed the disappearance of the monarchy, which had existed for more than a thousand years. And um, many people in France, as a response to that, started thinking to themselves that they should form a Catholic party. And that's probably what people are thinking in the United States right now. In fact, a lot of the professional traditionalists and professional Catholic commentators, those who get paid to give you their opinion, uh, is uh, are, are telling you that we need a French party. In fact, I'm in a group text with a bunch of people on Twitter who are all pro-Trump people and who are all thinking that if we just vote harder next time, that we can prevail, that we can cr- truly create Christendom, recreate Christendom, merely by casting a vote. I think by the end of this broadcast, you're going to be cured of that fallacy, and hopefully some of you who are in that group are watching right now. So the, f- the second chapter of this article is called The Two Cities. And what it's referring to are the two cities alluded to by St. Augustine in his landmark masterpiece, The City of God. Here's a quote from The City of God. Quote, Two loves have built two cities. Self-love to the point of contempt for God made the earthly city. The love of God to the point of self-contempt made the city of God. So that we're talking about two cities here. And then the author of this article goes on to quote the medievalist Le Mangier, uh, 1908 to 1980, who comments, 
quote, the city of God is the city of the righteous who seek the kingdom of God before being part of the number of the elect in heaven. To this city of God, Civitas Dei, St. Augustine opposes the earthly city, Civitas Terrena, which groups together those who do not seek the kingdom of God. To both, he gave the mystical name of city. With the advent of modernity, the author goes on, self-love takes its revenge. The Enlightenment endowed it with a doctrinal and political corpus, which produced a type of society unprecedented in the history of humanity. God is absent from institutions and relegated to the private sphere. Now, we see this in the United States in the so-called separation between church and state. About a year ago, I did a podcast back when Joseph was involved, and we actually, Thomas was involved as well, and the three of us talked about the so-called separation of church and state. You can find that podcast on this YouTube channel, but we absolutely debunked it, because the truth of the matter is that there can be no separation of church and state, and that those eight famous words penned by President Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States, when he wrote that letter, he was actually defending the rights of the church not the rights of the state. So he erected a so-called wall of separation between church and state in order to prevent the state from impugning the rights and liberties of the church. In 1947, the Everson court rearranged that. They inverted it. You might call it demonic uh, inversion. And they reinterpreted those words in a private letter that he wrote, not not in a constitution or a declaration of independence or any such thing. They reinterpreted that in the 1947 Everson case to conclude that the wall of separation really is around the church, and it prevents the church from encroaching on the state. It's exactly the opposite of the meaning. But that's never been done in human history, and that started with the French and American revolutions. Quote, the heteronymous society finds its justification, its legitimacy outside of herself in the divinity Jean-Jacques Chabot, lawyer and professor of the Institute of Ertudes Politiki, uh, Politics, sorry, French is difficult for me, specifies, quote, so-called heteronymous societies function on the basis of a system of values arising from a principle which is both external and superior to them. They're marked by the transcendence of the divinity in relation to human life and its social organization, such as the case of monarchical France, where Jesus Christ is institutionally recognized as true king by his lieutenant during the coronation ceremony. This Christian society, therefore, fully deserves the qualification of the city of God. Now, just a note, I think that the French people are uniquely qualified to opine on this, and you'll see why as well, because some of Pope Leo XIII's encyclicals, which a lot of people in the 2020 election were quoting, saying, we have to choose between lesser of good and evil, and we have to vote for Trump, you have a duty to vote for Trump, because Pope Leo XIII was exhorting the Catholics in France to vote, and that was a tactical decision that he made according to this author, and I'll read some of those arguments that he presents. But I think it's important that we all understand that the French were really the first daughter of the church. They're the eldest daughter of the church, and they are the most qualified to speak on this issue. We are babies. We are infants in the faith. We have no uh, patrimony like the French do. We have no grounding in the permanence of Christendom like the French do. I'm not saying that they're better Catholics than we. I'm not saying that they're better historians than we. What I am saying is that they have the census fidelium, the sense of the faith, of the faithful, and census fide, and we don't. So we can learn a thing or two from our elder brothers and sisters in the church. 
Here's another quote. In the Western European companies have grown from the 16th century, a plan for autonomy, not only for the civil power against the ecclesiastical power, but more fundamentally human society claiming to be in principle of itself. Such a statement implicitly aimed to operate a transfer of the absolute of religious transcendence to the benefit of political and social imminence to substitute a normatively based on religious otherness by a purely human normativity having a claim to self-legitimization, either by individual reason or by social order. The author goes on to say this is the case with societies resulting from the three revolutionary ideologies of 1789, liberalism, nationalism, and socialism. And there could be no doubt, ladies and gentlemen, that the United States is a derivative of those three Uh, liberalism, nationalism, and socialism, we are perhaps one of the most socialistic, if not the most communistic, nation in the world. We export it as a profession. It's, um, he continues on, we will call this unique society resulting from from modernity the city of man-god. The philosopher and former minister Luke Ferry, born in 1951, affirms that the feeling which emerges from modernity, quote, bear witness to a new relationship to the sacred, a transcendence inscribed in imminence to human subjectivity in the space of humanism to God. Now, these are a lot of big words. Some of these are philosophical terms. I don't want to take the time to define all of them. What I want you to just understand is that this is a scholarly article published by, uh, published by somebody who actually gives a hoot about how society is organized. Now, we're going to get to kind of the meat of this here uh, in the next segment, but just because I feel like you might be overwhelmed right now, I want to give you a little bit of Fulton Sheen to think about. Now, here is a quick clip of Fulton Sheen in which he makes the bold claim that our blessed Lord, while he was on earth, while he was talking to the apostles, considers the three forms of government which are legitimate. He considers democracy, he considers aristocracy, and then he considers monarchy. And he settles on the latter. Here it is. Our blessed Lord considered the three possible forms of church government. How would his mystical body be governed? There might be three ways. One, democratic, two, the aristocratic, and three, the theocratic. The democratic would be one in which a majority vote decides, in which everyone has an entirely different opinion of what is to be, to be the truth and to be the law. The aristocratic is an appeal not so much to the majority or to the masses, but rather an, an appeal to an aristoi, an aristocracy, a house of parliament, a senate, a congress, a house of lords, whatever it be. And the theocratic is one in which God chooses one man as he chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and guides and protects and directs this man. Our blessed Lord did not establish his church without considering all of these possible forms of government. So he began with the democratic. And his question was, who do men say the Son of Man is? Notice men, 
In other words, if you took a poll, if you took a vote, what is the general opinion concerning me? What answer did our Lord get? The answer was, some say you're John the Baptist, another's Elias, another Jeremiah, another's one of the prophets. No unity, no certitude. Leave the government of the church to individual interpretation and you get contrary and contradictory views. Eternal truth who said that not a single iota of his teaching should be changed could ever accept a government of that kind in which men could not agree and so he had for it nothing but the withering scorn of his silence. Next, he appeals to the aristocratic. Whom do you say that I am? You, my twelve apostles, you, my aristocracy, you, my chosen group, who am I? There was no answer. First of all, there had been no head appointed as their spokesman. Furthermore, some of them had doubts. Thomas certainly had doubts. Judas was not very certain of his financial sagacity. Philip was troubled about relations to the Heavenly Father. Though our blessed Lord could not build his church upon an aristocracy alone. At this point, there's one man without the consent of the others who steps forward. And he speaks in the name of all. And he gives the right answer. His answer is, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Here is one man with divine illumination, as we shall see, who speaks in the name of all, who makes the confession of the divinity of Christ, who affirms faith in him, who is to be chosen as the head of his mystical body. This is the theocratic form of church government. All right, I'm going to give you a quick preview of the of the direction that the rest of this podcast is going to go, just so you get the bottom line here. The bottom line is that if Christ is king of kings, then kingship is the rightful order of the universe. It doesn't say that he's president of pres- presidents or prime minister of prime ministers or president of senators and, or any such garbage. Uh, but to get there, we have to understand a little bit about the Christian concept of man versus the revolutionary concept of man, and these are in stark differences to each other. And I think once we can point these two things out, then we can really understand where we're going and why. So the Christian concept of man is that there is one human nature throughout all the ages. From reading biblical texts through those from antiquity to contemporary times, we see that man does not change. He always asks himself the same questions, experiences the same feelings. He is always the seat of the same passions, the same distresses, and same hopes. Natural morality is a science based on the observation of human behavior. Its principle is based on the observation stated, among others, by Aristotle that man is by nature a political animal. This science studies the hierarchy of human acts to achieve maximum happiness. When he deals with natural law, St. Thomas simply says, quote, There is in every human a natural inclination to act in accordance with his reason. 
what is properly acting according to virtue. Man's intelligence has been clouded by original sin, and because of his passions, he is often tempted to justify his evil deeds against natural morality. To help him find his way, and thanks to revelation, God, his creator, gave him the Ten Commandments, summarized in the commandments of love for God and neighbor. As the creator, God is the source of power. Jesus said to Pilate, quote, You would have no power over me if it was not given to you from above. St. Paul confirms, quote, All power comes from God. God is the beginning and the end of everything. In the beginning was the Word. Finally, if the sacrifice of Jesus Christ made possible the redemption of mankind, salvation is individual and demands from us acceptance of our nature. God wanted us to be political animals. However, life in society is only possible because we need each other, because we are different and therefore unequal. Okay, That's the Christian point of view of the human person. That is the Christian point of view of man's nature. Man's nature is not changing. It doesn't change over time. It is fixed. We've had the same questions and the same struggles and the same sins from every age to age. Contrast that now with a revolutionary point of view, revolutionary concept of man. Revolutionaries say that there is no such thing as human nature. Man is continually evolving through the ages towards something higher. It is the theory of evolutionism, the myth of the progress of mankind. But towards what can man progress if not towards a kind of angelic state than divine? I'll take a quick detour here. You really need to listen to my three-hour podcast with Hugh Owen, who runs the Colby Center for Creation Studies. He dismantles evolutionism and points out why evolutionism is really the error of Russia. A lot of people talking about Fatima, some people being called Fatima fundamentalist. E. Michael Jones was on the channel last week, and he used that phrase. He said, if you don't believe that Russia has already been properly consecrated, then you're probably a Fatima fundamentalist. Well, I count myself among those people, but uh, what is the principal error that we're talking about that spreads from Russia? Most people say communism. I say evolutionism because communism is a direct result of evolutionism, but evolutionism corrupts how we conceive man's nature, man's very nature. And so it creates the city of man, not the city of God. Let me continue. The revolutionary concept of man. There can be no fixed morality. Modern man superbly considers that he has reached the adult phase of his evolution. He must therefore free himself from this morality of another age developed by the uh, archaic, frustrated, and masochistic spirit of our ancestors. You've heard this before, right? Evolution is inevitable. It is the famous meaning of history. The revolution makes it possible to accelerate the awareness of humanity of its great destiny Man walking towards divinity can finally decide for himself. Now the author here gets into some quotations. So first he quotes the German uh, Hegelian philosopher Feuerbach. In 1872, Feuerbach says, The absolute being, the God of man, is the very being of man. The God of man, ladies and gentlemen. That's not a Catholic version of mankind. The man of modernity now asserts himself in the source of power, as declared in Article 3 of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen of 1791. Okay, so this is the French Revolutionary 1791. Quote, the principle of all sovereignty resides essentially in the nation. All sovereignty is in the nation. Article 2 
of Title III of the same Constitution adds, The nation from which alone emanate all the powers. The nation from which alone emanate all the powers. Another quote. I am the hatred of any order that man has not established and which he is not king and God altogether. This is Monsignor Guam. Guame. Freemason minister Jules Ferry in the 19th century said nothing else. Quote, my soul, my goal is to organize humanity without God and without a king. Notice that God and king go together. Altar and throne go together. You cannot have one without the other. And typically when you have both, they both are the target and have to be eliminated by Freemasons like Ferry. Similarly, the modern royalist Charles Morrow stated in 1952 relates to us the foundation of the positive philosophy where he says, quote, the philosopher was pursuing his program of reorganizing, in fact, without God or king. Morrow specifies the words of royalty and the king have to count a defined acceptance. They mean king and divine right of kings. The author goes on to say, but the autonomy of man in relation to God remains more natural in a republic than in a monarchy. So the philosopher Marcel Gauchet, born in 1946, declares, quote, the republic is the regime of human freedom against religious heteronomy. This is its truly philosophical definition. So we're talking about human freedom. We're focused on the city of man. We're saying that man is his own God. This is the city of man. This is the concept of the revolutionary view of mankind. And it is a derivation. It is a derivative of the French Revolution, whose core principles of fraternity and socialism and liberty have coalesced together in concert with evolutionism to say that we are evolving towards deities. We're getting better and better. Our, our nature is improving. We're getting smarter and smarter. We are smarter than anyone who's ever walked the planet. We live longer. We are healthier. We know more. Therefore, we are more godlike. And because we are more godlike, whatever moral principles we decide today should be binding on all mankind in all places and all times. And we should, in fact, look at history, they say, through the lens of what we see today. And that's why you can see that there are roving bands of, uh, of vandals in the United States ever since last summer. Um, with the with the tragic death of uh, Saint George, you know who, and um, these people want to tear down our monuments. They want to unmoor us from our history. They want to rename buildings. All of that is because we are better today than we were yesterday. Our nature is superior today than it was the day before. We are evolving towards something that is more godly, more beautiful, and therefore we know better. The particular and dominant fact, quote, which distinguishes these centuries is the equality of conditions. The main passion that stirs men of these times is the love of this equality. So I, when I read to you the Christian view of man, one of the last things I said is that life in society is only possible because we need each other, because we are different and therefore unequal. We know that we are different, and therefore we know that we are unequal. We are not unequal in worth, in value, in dignity, but we are unequal in ability and therefore in circumstance. The city of man, on the other hand, tries to combat this and create equality 
of condition. Uh, and they love this equality. Quote, individualism is of dem- democratic origin and it threatens to grow as conditions are equalized. So they're trying to equalize everything in society. That is the, uh, so just a note on the three revolutionary principles from 1791, which partially animate the United States of America. And then we're going to get into the conductor of the revolutionary current, which is universal suffrage. And that's the point of this video. Okay, so the first thing we have to understand is socialism. The socialism opposes the proletariat class deified to the middle class in order in order to achieve the global dictatorship of the proletariat which is supposed to reign equality. In fact, we know what it is, an unnatural elite oppressing the city. Nationalism sets the deified nation against other peoples. Nationalist revolutions always lead to expansionist war. Example, the French Revolution declares war on Europe. The same goes for the revolutions of Nazi Germany, of fascist Italy. Within the nations, there is a particular equality, uniformity. We fight ruthlessly against minorities and region, regional identities because they are seen as so many dividing factors. Okay, so... That's nationalism. And then liberalism pits individual gods against each other. Each person is absolutely free. Individualism triumphs. The other is the one who comes to limit our freedom. It is therefore necessary to free oneself from one's natural authority, which one's egoism can make odious. Artificial conflicts are thus created between man and woman, parent and child, teacher and pupil, priest and faithful, boss and worker. Okay, these are the animating principles. Now, we're going to get into the conductor, this, this uh, author says, which is universal suffrage. Okay, Universal suffrage. Now, we know what that phrase means. It means everybody votes. Everybody has a right to vote. Everybody's compelled to vote. Everybody ought to vote. Experience shows that establishing the city of man, God, in a way uh, too displayed, too brutal, or too authoritarian leads to a failure of the current conversion of minds to the revolution. Failure of the convention in its attempts to impose the cult of the goddess reason. I think there's a statue of the goddess reason in the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. Failure of socialist revolutions with their scientific materialism. We talk a lot about scientific materialism today, especially scientific materialism and the terror of COVID-1984. Failure of nationalist revolutions when the war turns to their disadvantage. Liberal democracy, because it carries out its reforms smoothly, proves to be a revolutionary engine much more powerful than nationalist and socialist ideologies. In order not to frighten public opinion and to achieve equality and freedom, it attacks the natural order in small steps. Here's how it attacks the natural order. Some words I'm going to skip or I'm going to try to use euphemisms. For example, divorce, the destruction of innocent human life, so-called marriages of deranged people, euthanasia. It all happens gradually, but it all must happen. It must happen when you build the city of man. To avoid any dispute, thanks to universal suffrage, she lets people believe that they themselves wanted these changes. So here he's saying that universal suffrage, which is your right to vote, is an illusion. It is a smokescreen. You are allowed to believe that you're making a difference when you pull the lever for your candidate or your cause or your whatever. I don't know if I circled the quote, and I want to get to this quote, but I want to tell you it from memory as well because this was one of the most damning things in this particular article. 
The revolutionary doesn't care who you vote for, ladies and gentlemen, so long as you vote. Okay? And we're going to get to that. The revolutionary doesn't care if you voted for Trump or for Biden. The revolutionary doesn't care if you voted for Trump or for Clinton. They don't care if you voted for Obama or for Romney. So long as you vote, the revolutionary is happy because you have the illusion of choice and you are part and parcel to the building of the city of man. To divert attention, quote, from the real issue the city of man got against the city of God, it creates an artificial opposition, the right-left uh, scenario in which it occupies the central place, that of the arbiter, and places its competing ideologies, socialism and nationalism, as well as its bastard forms, social democracy, liberal nationalism, national socialism, etc. Because of their apparent oppositions, we forget that these ideologies all have as their finality the man-god. They all have something in common, ladies and gentlemen. If you're on the right or the left, they all have something in common. And that is that the city of God loses his fighters in electoral battles that do not concern them. Thus, liberal democracy, thanks to universal suffrage and the right-left um, uh, paradigm, maintains a permanent current of conversion of minds to the revolution. The engine turns, the engine turns, the engine turns. Okay, we're going to get to the next couple parts of this article and I'm going to play you a video from Father Ripperger uh, on his YouTube channel, Census Tradiciones, in which he talks about the uh, vice of malice. But I can't get to that video until we understand the appalling trap of universal suffrage. The trap. Okay? So the question is, is liberal democracy a religion? Is it a religion? Now, if you were here from the beginning and you saw the first video I showed you, you're darn skippy it's a religion. It's absolutely a religion. Democracy in the United States is spoken of in hushed tones of reverence. You saw Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. You even saw Patrick J. Buchanan, stalwart of the right, so-called, in the United States, shedding tears, crocodile tears, over the attack on the temple of democracy. Temple of Democracy was profaned, they say. Profaned, says President Biden, so-called usurper-in-chief. So the, the answer to the question, is liberal democracy a religion? That's obviously a yes. We speak about it like it's a religion. We teach it in our schools like it's a religion. It has its own dogma, its own creed. When in the course of human events, ladies and gentlemen, we hold these truths to be self-evident... These are our creeds. This is our religion in the United States of America. And this is something that the, that the traditional Catholics who get paid their livelihood to talk to you about Trump, and they're all in with Trump and Vigano, they're never going to question the underlying assumption that the revolutionary doesn't care who you vote for so long as you vote. Is liberal democracy a religion? Quote, The superiority of liberal democracy compared to the two other ideologies is that its, pur its purpose, the city of man, is realized in its very functioning. By universal suffrage, regardless of age, regardless of competence, regardless of wisdom, 
Every individual is called upon to pronounce on the destiny of the city by electing men whom he does not know and who represents ideologies of which he knows nothing. By referendum, we ask him his opinion on what comes under natural morality, such as the destruction of innocent human life, euthanasia, etc., or to decide the fate of what does not belong to him, such as the disappearance of the country in Europe. No moral reference is recognized a priori. No natural order serves as a point of reference. As a good disciple of the Democrat and Greek sophist Protagoras, the voter ends up thinking that, quote, man is the measure of everything. If you, dear viewer, if I have the ability to pronounce judgment on morality that is defined by Almighty God, then I am making myself into God. And the author continues, quote, little by little, without knowing it, by the very practice of voting, he gets used to the idea that he himself is the source of truth, that he can decide what is right and wrong. Now, how does this privilege belong to the author of all things, to God himself? In fact, objectively, the voter replaces God. He is the man-God. Remember the fall of Adam, quote, The serpent replied, The day you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like gods who know good and evil. And the Freemason uh, Oswald Wirth congratulates himself thus, quote, the seductive serpent symbolizes a particular instinct which is characteristic of making the individual feel the need to rise in the scale of beings. This secret stimulus is the promoter of all progress. Original sin was the sin of pride of man who wanted to be master of good and evil, and he refused his own human nature. He assigned to himself competence that he does not possess. Isn't that the, de the very definition of presumption of pride, ladies and gentlemen? These are fair questions. Who's gonna, who else is going to ask these questions? Who else is going to challenge the underlying assumptions behind vote harder, vote Republican, elect Trump in 2024, try to win back the Senate, try to win back the House? We cannot vote our way out of this, ladies and gentlemen. I think that's the bottom line. I'm going to give you a little bit more to hang your hat on because that's not a very satisfying answer, but that is a truism nonetheless, regardless of what you think about it. It is true. So would democracy be identified with the religion of man? Here the author says what I told you earlier. Like a religion, liberal democracy does not have uh, like a religion, it has its dogma, the dogma of the general will as the source of power. Uh, quote, since power is no longer based on God, but on the people, it is he who must be the subject of all our consideration. It has its own creed. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in France and the United States is the U.S. Constitution and the amendments thereof. Its own sacraments, the high mass of universal suffrage. Augustine Cochin, 1876 to 1916, does not express himself otherwise in commenting on Rousseau's social contract. This is a long quote, but this is worth our hearing. This is going to compel us to believe that there is a high sacrament in liberal democracies, and that is universal suffrage as casting the ballot. Quote, We would be lost as Christianity without help from above. We are not strong enough to save ourselves on our own. And likewise, Jean-Jacques, 
We are incapable of freeing ourselves from the general will and to follow her. We need the external help of the law, grace, effect of the vote, sacrament, which creates in us the new man. Thus, the social contract is not a political treatise. It is a treatise on theology, the theory of an extra-natural will created in the heart of the natural man, substituted in him for his current will by the mystery of the law accomplished within the contractual or voluntary or thought society under the sensitive species of the sacrament of voting. Okay, so we know that voting is a sacrament. We know that liberal democracy is religion. It has its own creed. It has its own dogmas. It has its own litanies. It has its own um, communion of saints. You know those founding fathers that we speak about in hushed tones of reverence? Those founding fathers which were so ahead of their time and, and brilliant men. Those are our saints in this religion. And the high sacrament on the high altar is showing up dutifully to cast a vote. In other words, push God's authority out and supplant that authority by your own authority by casting a vote. But Mike, you're sitting here and you're thinking to yourself, what if we formed a Catholic party? Couldn't we form a Catholic party and take back what's rightfully ours? Try to stop Joe Biden, the usurper-in-chief, try to install somebody that is more uh, aligned with our values. This, the author calls, is a suicide option, and here's why. The temptation is sometimes great to want to take democracy in its own trap, to constitute a Catholic poll and fight against the revolution with its own weapons, campaigns, lobbying, slogans, elections, petitions. History shows us that never was an attempt like that successful, even with favorable conditions. And this was really the part of the article that was that was fascinating to me, because I think this is the part where he's going to get into a little bit about Leo the Thirteenth, which people are often fond of quoting when they say you have to go vote for Trump, other because Leo the Thirteenth said so. Let us remember the disastrous affair at a church rally for the Republic in 1892, so one year after the French Revolution of 1891. To France, it's Catholic in its vast majority, yet the country is ruled by the, uh, the third uh, revolutionary government, violently anti-Christian republic. The Catholic elite are monarchists. So Pope Leo XIII made the following calculation— the church is not dependent on any type of government, monarchy, aristocracy, or republic. So if we morally oblige Catholics to vote, it is a mathematical probability that their elected representatives will be in the majority and the republic will become Christian. Okay, so this is a calculation that Leo XIII made as a response to the French Revolution. He said, all right, well, you guys are like 95% Catholic, so I'm going to bind your conscience and force you to vote. Because if all the Catholics start voting, then the third, you know, the, the, the anti-Catholic revolution will come to an end, and the persecution of Christians will come to an end, and France will become a Catholic republic. In fact, after the rally, all catechisms make voting a Christian duty. Well, he says we know the rest. Well, you and I don't know the rest because we don't know our European history that well. 
But in 1893, the number of Catholic deputies, in fact, rose to 200. But six months later, it fell to 97. More than a century later, the results are overwhelming. France is still revolutionary. The Catholic Party has vanished into thin air. There are deputies who claim to be Christians in all parties of the political spectrum. They espouse their respective ideologies. Catholics in France have become a minority. There are, what are the reasons for this disaster? Why has the Catholic Party, supported by the Pope, with an overwhelming balance of power, failed? In the light of the previous study, he gives two related answers. If you create a Christian party which uses the rules of the game of the democratic system, it renders the latter the eminent service of bringing contradiction, of provoking a new mindset. This creates new possibilities for the movement of ideas. Universal suffrage practiced by Christians then fulfills its role perfectly as conductor of the current of conversion of the minds of the revolution. Like Leo XIII, it'd be dangerous to consider democracy only a mode of government. We have seen that it is essentially a religion— that of the man God. Let us understand that the revolutionary does not care who one votes for so long as one votes. There's the quote. The important thing is to practice, praxis, this act of pride. He knows that in this way, an interior transformation will take place in souls in the manner of that produced by a right. There is a transformation in your soul that takes place every time you are involved in a sacrament. When you walk down the aisle and you, uh, are, and you get married and there's a sacrament of matrimony, there is a change in your soul. When you go to the confessional, there's a change in your soul. When you receive our Lord in the, in the Eucharist, there's a change in your soul. When you are anointed on your deathbed, there's a change in your soul because the rites change you. The rites change you. I think it was Pope Pius X, Pope St. Pius X, who said, how we pray is how we worship and how we live. So if you, if you partake in a pagan rite, don't you think that that changes your soul too? Don't you think that there is some damage done? That's what the author of this article is saying. By universal suffrage, quote, the member of the Catholic Party is led to adopt the mental attitude of the revolutionary who has no other master than himself. No other master than himself. I am the highest person. I am God. Quote, he practices the revolutionary act while claiming to fight against the revolution. So unwittingly, he acts like a man god. And if this schizophrenia does not make him lose his faith, the risks are much greater for his children. Eventually, over time, to the extent we participate in liberal democracy, ladies and gentlemen, we will lose our souls. Our children will lose their souls. That's what he's saying. Quote, let us never forget that we always end up thinking the way we act, and that is where the extraordinary importance of, relig of religious ritual lies. I don't know if this person is a traditional Catholic or a Novus Ordo Catholic, but anybody who understands the importance of the religious ritual... Anybody who really, truly understands that that transforms you, that that shapes you, that that is part of your identity, is probably a traditional Catholic. Welcoming the record turnout in the referendum on the Maastricht Treaty, when the yes had won only by a 20, tiny 51%, the major newspaper in France announced on the first page, quote, a big Victory for democracy. 51%, a tiny margin, 
voted on some treaty that you and I don't have the time to understand what it is, but it's, quote, a big victory for democracy. These people don't care for whom you vote or for what. They care that you vote. Please give this video a like and share it. The only way people are going to watch this video is if you share it with them, if you say, hey, this is the cure to Americanism right here. I'm going to continue, but I am going to get to the Father Ripperger video because it is absolutely essential that we hear his words specifically on the vice of malice. Okay, how do you stop the revolutionary engine? Part five of this article. How do we stop the revolutionary engine? This is the article in Viva Le Roy. It is, first of all, important to restore things to their rightful place. Recognize our condition as a creature entirely dependent on God. Except our nature is man, a political animal. Try not to act according to what it demands. Or try to act according to what it demands. This is the condition for accessing maximum happiness in this world and the eternal happiness in the next. To this end, our ideal must be respect for the Ten Commandments and the commandments of love of God and of neighbor. Denounce this imposture which makes man the master of good and evil. Quote, In the city of God, because of original sin, there are always faults against our nature and therefore against the commandments of God that are recognized as such and regretted. In the revolutionary city, however, in order to give free rein to his disorderly passions and to give himself a clear conscience, man decides that there is no longer any sin. He is both judge and party. His morality is subjective and no longer objective. However, the greatest sins are not so much to go against a a law of God, but to say that this law does not exist because from there everything is permitted. Speaking the truth loud and clear without concession, the truth is one. We cannot take it and leave it as we please. We are not masters of it. However, in the gospel, it tells us, blessed are the peacemakers. Unlike the revolutionary in accordance with Christ's command, the Christian will put love of natural differences and calm social tensions. Another quote here. Contrary to what liberal Christians claim, our Lord never came to abolish inequalities. He never came to abolish inequalities. He affirms his kingship and his hierarchical superiority while giving the example to follow. Quote, so if I have washed your feet, your Lord and teacher, you also ought to wash one another's feet. The Christian duty is therefore to serve his brothers in the love of Christ, each at his level. In this way, he works for the common good. I've talked about the common good in my GameStop video. Common good versus the collective good. Common good is something that we all benefit from, and it is an authentic Christian ideal. The collective good is communism, and we have to reject it with every fiber of our being. Hedge funds do not contribute to the common good. They contribute to the collective good. They have to be destroyed. Okay. To dry up the current conversion of minds to the revolution, the author of this important article that I've, I've shown you the picture of already, stop voting. And this is going to be the most difficult part of this discussion, ladies and gentlemen, because, look, I am somebody, I grew up listening to Rush Limbaugh. I think it was one of the first voices I ever heard. I remember the impeachment of Bill Clinton well. That was the ascendancy of talk radio. I am a founding member of the Tea Party. I'm a lifelong member of the GOP. I have voted in every single election that I could as an adult man. 
I've contributed a lot of money to elections. A lot of money. Significant amounts of money. In fact, I wish I had tied that money to church on retrospect, looking back on it. So I tell you, as somebody who swore an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, I'm wearing my Marine Corps pin on my lapel today to tell you that this article has shaken me to my bones. This article has proposed not only the problem that we're facing in the United States today, but the solution. The problem is is that we're all participating in the city of man. The solution is to stop participating. That's what this author says. For 200 years, quote, the fighters of the city of God have been exhausted in democratic battles and their number has continued to decrease. We have analyzed the reason. The democratic rule of the game is rigged. It is the machine to lose Christians. The rule, the, the, the game is rigged. Elections are rigged. We've seen that. We know that. It shouldn't be a surprise. If you're just now waking up to that fact in 2020, I apologize, but that's why I'm doing this video now because I think a lot of you out there are disillusioned with what you saw in 2020, and I certainly am too. Can't vote our ways out of this, ladies and gentlemen, because it is rigged. Secondly, the practice of voting without the required skills constitutes an act of pride, which leads to usurpation of the place of God and the acceptance of ideologies. To vote is to recognize the rules of the game, the law of numbers. It is to recognize the validity of the condemnations of Christ by the crowd. This is the important line. He He doesn't elucidate here, but I'm going to. We have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. We want Barabbas. Ladies and gentlemen, this is mob rule. This is democracy. Crucify him. Crucify him. Let's have a quote from Pope Pius IX. Blessed Pope Pius IX. 1874. Quote, I bless all those who cooperate in the resurrection of France. I bless them for the purpose, let me tell you, to see them take care of a very difficult but very necessary work, that of eliminating or diminishing a horrible plague that afflicts society, contemporary contemporary, and which we call universal suffrage. Blessed Pope Pius IX is calling universal suffrage your right to vote. Everyone voting is a plague, a horrible plague that afflicts society. He continues, quote, To hand over the decision of the most serious questions to crowds, and I will just add to mobs, necessarily unintelligent and passionate, is not this to indulge in chance and voluntary run into the abyss. Yes, universal suffrage would rather deserve the name of universal madness. And when secret societies take hold of it, as it too often happens, that of universal lie. It is universal madness, and then when the secret societies take hold of it, it is universal lie. Blessed Pope Pius IX on universal suffrage. Okay, let's get to Father Ripperger. You're looking at me right now and you're saying, Mike, we have a duty to choose the lesser of two evils. I know this. This is Catholic social teaching. We have a duty to vote. Yeah, I know Trump's not perfect. I know that Planned Parenthood spending went up under him. 
I know that conservatism was destroyed, the family was destroyed, that deviants were placed in the cabinet, that it no, he no longer stood for traditional families, for traditional values, that he censured the church, that he shut down the church, and that the shutdowns happened under him, and that he was involved in bailing out the church in exchange, a bribe, a $3.5 billion bribe to shut them down. I know that all these things happened, that he participated in COVID-1984 hysteria. I know that he did those things, but he is the lesser of two evils, and we have a duty to choose the lesser of two evils. Well, here's Father Ripiker on that. One of the things that exorcists notice among demons is their animus delendi, which is a Latin phrase which means the desire to destroy. Demons desire to destroy everything that reflects God in any way because of their hatred for God, and this is why they want to destroy everything. The animus delendi is not just a desire to destroy but it's almost a compulsion, just a desire, but a compulsion in which a person is driven to destroy everything he gets his hands on. We've already seen this in, in this, in the case in relationship to demons insofar as they maximize damage within the context, uh, or in the, in, in the context in which they are capable. Demons are incapable of seeking the good of an individual, society, cultural, or nation. They're just incapable because they're bent on evil. It is a sign of malice. Malice is, is defined by St. Thomas Aquinas as when a person chooses the lesser good over the greater good. Now here we're talking about, like for example, we tend to think as malice as when the person intentionally chooses evil. The philosophers are very clear. People are not capable of choosing evil as such. They can only choose evil under the aspect of the good. And that's what we're talking about, that the person becomes malicious because they choose evil under the aspect of the good rather than choosing the true good. Ladies and gentlemen, when the elites of conservative and traditional Catholic media tell you that you are duty-bound to choose the lesser good, they are committing a grave error. They are telling you that you are duty-bound to commit malice. Malice. And this malice, unfortunately, is not just a private sin. There's no such thing as a private sin. But it doesn't just apply to you and your family, and your offsprings, and subsequent generations, no. It spreads like a virus. It spreads like a contagion. And it affects all of us. This is a truly counter-revolutionary principle that I'm elucidating here today. And it's taken me a long time to gain up the courage, not only to confront this idea for myself and for my family, but to transmit it to you in the face of everybody. I mean, you go down the list from Steve Skojak, who blocked me on Twitter, by the way, at 1 Peter 5, from Dr. Marshall, from Michael Matt, from Mike Voris, and you go on and on and on. The Gordon brothers think that a Catholic Republic is the most awesome and tubular thing they've ever heard of. All of these people make their money and their livelihood giving you opinions that are popular. Restoring the faith is here to give you opinions that are sometimes unpopular. Because 
as Catholics, we cannot participate in this dizzying stream of malice anymore. The article is much longer, and I want you to read it yourself. I'll link to it in the show notes. I haven't done that yet, but when I when I stop the live stream, I will definitely do that. You can you if you are a French speaker, you can read it in the in the French, or you can have Google translate it for you. Or as the base lumberjack up in Canada, Kennedy Hall, he probably f- speaks French, so you can text it to him, ask him to translate it for you. But what's the solution? What's the solution? As part of the show prep today, I was listening to a podcast where somebody recently was interviewing Charles Kalum. Charles has been on the channel a couple times. Charles is a brilliant man, and I, I, I love him to death. We used to be parishioners together in Los Angeles. He moved to Europe, and I'm in the heart of America now, but we still stay in touch. And I thought about bringing him on this show to talk about this very subject, but I figured two things. One, I wasn't going to get a word in, and I wasn't going to get through this article. <laughs> and two... Uh, I, we have to we have to work our way through this material and understand that the revolutionary concept of man versus the traditional concept of man is the foundational principle here. We have to reject evolutionism. We have to reject the idea that we are evolving towards a deity. We have to reject the fact that when we go into the ballot box without any training, without education, without governmental experience, we are imposing our ignorant will on the masses and participating in the high sacrament of what is truly a religion. Democracy is a religion. Democracy is spoken of like a religion. It has its own rights. It has its own dogma. And it has its own communion of saints. So what I'm telling you is a really tough pill to swallow. Maybe it's a red pill. Maybe it's a black pill. That we shouldn't even bother showing up to the elections. We know that the elections are rigged anyway. We know it from history, from 1893 onward. There hasn't been a free and fair election. And if you're just waking up to that in 2020, I'm sorry. I woke up to it a couple cycles ago, but not much ahead of many of you. So what can we do? Well, Christ is the king. Christ is the king of the universe. And Christ can only be king if he is king of our house, if he is king of our hearts. You know, the Novus Ordo and the Modernists and the Liberals and the SJs and all of them together, they just want, they want Christ to be king of your heart. Christ is king, in a theoretical sense. Christ is king of your thoughts, of your good thoughts, of your good vibes. But no, Christ is truly king of kings. That is the order of the universe. That is how he ordained it. You heard Fulton Sheen say it. And we are no longer going to choose between the lesser of two evils. We are no longer going to participate in this casino, this madness, this lie. And democracy is a lie. So let's wake up. When society collapses in the United States, which it will, I assure you, that is, our, that is our moment. That is our opportunity. So let's wait for it. Let's pray for it. In God's good time, the restoration of the monarchy, the restoration of Christ the King will happen. Thank you so much for watching. Thanks for all the patrons. Please do me a favor. Like the video so that the bots, Russian bots at YouTube, will present it to other people. But nothing is more powerful than sharing it. Share it into Facebook groups, share it into text messages, share it in signal chats, 
We need to wake up, ladies and gentlemen. We're all part of this machine, and, um, and we need the cure. And the cure is Christ the King. Viva Cristo Rey.